Hey, this is Vadim. Uh, this episode was recorded in the first week of June, which was uh, a challenging week in the United States. Uh, not all of our listeners are from the United States, but for those that are, you're uh, certainly aware of the protests going on in major cities. I don't feel that I'm in any position ultimately to to preach on this subject, but this is an educational podcast, and ultimately, I do strongly believe that education is our most powerful tool for making the world a little bit better. So I just want to point you, if you're li- if you're interested, point you to a resource that I found incredibly helpful. It's a website called mappingpoliceviolence.org, and there are several years worth of data there with a pretty handy interface and you can cut the data different ways and, and kind of, um, from my perspective, it's been very methodically collected and, and compiled and uh, might help answer some questions for you as it certainly has for me. Today's episode is about mastering. As Ben describes it, it's can, mastering can seem a bit of an enigmatic process. We're going to try to break some of that down for you, talk about what it is, what it isn't, how to do it if you're going to do it yourself. Uh, We're going to play some examples of mastered and unmastered songs. And we hope wherever you are in the world, you are staying safe and enjoy. You are listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. All right, welcome to another episode of the DIY Recording Guys podcast. I'm Vadim from Column Frog. Uh, let me do that over. <laughs> I'm Vadim from Calm Frog Recording. And I'm Ben from Dreamloud Studio. How's it going, Vadim? It's going all right. It's going all right. It's uh, strange times we're living in. Yeah. I, um, I have this baritone acoustic guitar, which I don't really play a lot, and I've I've just started kind of sitting at night and playing that instead of, you know, taking a break from computers and the news. And uh, that's, it's just an amazing instrument. I just love the sound of a baritone acoustic. So that's been, that's been soothing my soul a little bit. I've never heard of a baritone acoustic. Really? I know of baritone like normal guitars. Yeah, it's the same, same concept. It's just like a big, big old acoustic guitar, same tuning as like a baritone electric. And it just sounds beautiful. It just has a really nice, I mean, it's what you would expect, right, for a baritone acoustic to sound like. And I keep mine in Nashville tuning, if you're familiar with that. Remind me what it is. Is that Dadgad? Uh, no. So it's actually, the intervals are the same, but you have the third and fourth string. Yes, the third and fourth string are the two thinnest strings on the guitar. So you're kind of uh-huh. switching strings around. but the spacing is the same like you know in terms of um like it's it would like a standard a regular guitar tuned in nashville tuning would still be e-a-d-g-b-e okay but you've changed the voicing and it for some reason i just really love the voicing of it i actually (laughs) off script here but um there's a you know pat metheny is a guitar player yeah yeah guitarist yeah so he he had a couple of albums um that's where i first heard it 
the one I really like is called One Quiet Night, I believe. So that whole album is him on an acoustic, baritone acoustic in Nashville tuning, which is why I bought the guitar. Really? <laughs> and um, yeah, it's just it's just a beautiful, it's got some beautiful voicings that I've really just enjoyed. Just like writing and just like jamming on it a little bit at night. So anyway, that's my that's my story. What what have you been up to? I well, going off of that, I can remember like a decade ago when I was in like my first like serious rock band, like right around when I was um college aged. Uh, I remember our lead singer, lead guitar player, we'd be sitting in his basement, you know, like, I don't know, goofing off playing video games or whatever. And he would throw his acoustic guitar, his junkie like ovation, like a hundred dollar ovation. He would just like toss it like in the corner, like on, on a sofa or on the ground. I'm like, what the heck are you doing? And he's like, I like to toss it to see like what kind of tuning it falls into and then I'll try to play something on it. <laughs> and it sounds ridiculous, but like he would use it sometimes. But he would like fine tune it like once he saw like okay, what it yeah, yeah. He would fine tune it a little bit so that the intervals were actually correct. And then right. he would try to play something on it. And so I like that idea of switching things up to kind of inspire you to do stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's actually a good songwriting trick. Not that that's what this episode is about, but if you keep a little handy book i used to keep one of just weird alternate tunings and just put your guitar into an alternate tuning and like all of a sudden it's just like supercharges your creativity you just come up with like chords you couldn't have imagined yeah yeah for sure what's going on in you so you asked me what's going on in my world yeah. oh, not too much man other than just buying headphones left and right no <laughs> just kidding yeah yeah <laughs> I did buy another pair. Maybe I'll we'll have to talk about them later, but they're they're Bluetooth and wired, so I'm a little bit pumped about that. For those who can't decide. Exactly. <laughs> can't commit. So Ben, what are we talking about today? What's our episode? All right. So finally, <laughs> we're diving into what we're talking about, and that's going to be all about mastering 101, what it is, do you need it, how to get it. Is it all about mastering or is it 101? It's all about 101 mastering. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I can dig it. There's our there's our title. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if okay. I want to call it a 101. Like I want to kind of distill what I've learned over the past I'll call it 5 to 10 years of gotcha. audio production and try to distill it down into simple bite-sized um pieces of information that you could take with you and, and learn something. So you don't have to go through all the blogs and books and podcasts and YouTube videos that Vadim and I have gone through to try to figure out what is this enigma that we call mastering in, in the audio world. Because I don't know if, you're, if your experience is the same as mine, Vadim, but when I was first learning about, you know, what's the difference between recorded tracks versus pre-production versus mixing versus mastering, I kind of had a, I had my mind around everything else like decently well, but when it came to mastering, I just imagined that there was this great and powerful wizard and he, <laughs> and, and he lived somewhere in either LA or New York and he was a master of, of audio technology and audio uh -huh. engineering and and he had, had spent his whole life, he probably was a minimum age of 60 to be a mastering engineer. And he just had these golden ears that he had trained for decades of doing yeah. mastering work. And he had 
this amazing gear that he put your songs through that had a bunch of flashing lights and yeah and just looked amazing and that's what that's what mastering was you had to get an actual master and come to find out it can be that but it also <laughs> doesn't have to be that at all so i don't know what was what was your uh, first impression of what mastering was whenever you were learning all this audio stuff yeah yeah i was in i was in a band in high school and um the the topic came up we didn't know what we were doing but we were recording and nevertheless and um i remember asking the drummer he was like the most savvy of us at the time and i was like yeah what is mastering and he was like uh i think it it just makes stuff louder and i was like what i have a volume knob for that like what do you mean <laughs> that can't be all it is yeah right and yeah. um it's partially true. So that that was my first run in with uh, trying to trying to f- parse through what it is. My goal is by the end of this episode, you know exactly what mastering is, and you know what you'll need to do to go either get a good master or maybe forget mastering for your project. We have a clear goal. I like it. Yeah. So we'll we'll dive right into it. The first uh the first question and I've posed these as a series of questions that we're going to go through. So the first question is what is mastering? And I'll define it in a few different ways here. So I'll I'll give you s- some examples. All right. So first of all, mastering is the final quality control step in audio production. And this is where we would send our audio track. Um it's like the last step of actually manipulating the sound waves before we're sending our audio track off to a publisher for printing or streaming distribution. So that's the first thing that I'll say with this, and I'll just go through these three and then we can talk about it. Sure. Uh, the, the second thing is uh, mastering is processing done to a single stereo file, the mix, which is normally uh, bounced down and uh, into a stereo file, whereas mixing is the process of working with multiple recorded tracks and balancing and making them all work together. So I'm comparing and contrasting between mixing and mastering. And then the third thing is mastering involves one or or both of the following processes. It can be qualitative analysis or it can be a quantitative process to ensure that the master track has the final polish that it needs. Uh, before it's sent to the publisher distributor. It often involves processing uh, to ensure the master has the correct dynamic range, stereo width, EQ balance, and loudness that the track needs for whatever distribution you're going to be sending the track to. So I'm sure that there's other ways you could define mastering, but I thought that would be a good place to start. Uh, Any thoughts, Vadim? I like I like what you said there. So I think the flags you're planning are it's a it's a quality control step. Uh, just summarizing what you said from memory here, it's processing that's done on the final two channels of audio rather than like the individual tracks. And then you said it's um, what was the third one? It's it's both qualitative right. analysis and a quantitative process. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's a great summary. I'll the only things I can think to add are it's it's a second set of ears also um, for, you know, it's kind of another person who's an audio professional in another room that's usually very well tuned 
taking a listen, it's kind of like a double check. Like if you did your work, but it's important, you want somebody to double check it. Yeah. And I don't necessarily want to dive into this quite yet. This will be foreshadowing for later, but yep. okay. um, Sorry. I do. Spoiler alert. No, no, it's totally fine. <laughs> but the thing I want to get across too with this that is that um, mastering isn't a specific piece or a chain of gear or plugins that you need. Mastering is more so, it's more so a person really, or it's more a set of ears and an experience of working in audio. So I would much rather, I would much rather send my, if I wanted to get a song mastered really well, I would rather send my mix to somebody that I trust that has a lot of experience that's just working in GarageBand than I would send it to somebody that has a $100,000 studio, but not that much experience or not that good of ears. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now you're, you're, you're doing your own spoiler alerts now. But yeah. That's, that's, that does make sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. So um, before we dive into more of these, I want to say, uh, or I want to go over a, a few things that mastering isn't. So to contrast, um, and I have four things listed here. So the first thing is mastering isn't a magical fix for a bad mix. So mastering will oftentimes make your mixes sound a lot better and a lot more polished, uh, especially if you get a really good mastering engineer, but you can't expect it to take your bad song and turn it into an Ariana Grande hit Billboard number one single. <laughs> um, two, mastering isn't necessarily done by a master in the audio in audio processing, but it's often someone it's often done by somebody with a lot of audio engineering experience. So I'd venture to say that a, a lot of people that have been mix engineers for a long time uh, will either dabble in mastering or will become mastering engineers. But I also know people that when they first got into audio production, they were a mastering engineer from their early 20s. That's what mm -hmm. they wanted to do. They wanted to do mastering. So I wanted to kind of clear that up a little bit because I think just in the name mastering, and that definitely was how I was fooled, you know, whenever I was just learning audio was I thought that a mastering engineer was, he was a master of all things audio. He could play every I instrument see. perfectly, but that's not, not, that's not the case at all. Yeah. I mean, in fact, when we, we always reference things back to our production pyramid, mastering is the tippy tippy top of the pyramid. So yeah, every, a lot of the things that come before it, uh, can't necessarily be corrected in mastering. So I, I like what you said there a lot. Yeah, yeah. Number three, mastering isn't a certain set of, and I already I already said this in my spoiler, but mastering isn't <laughs> a certain set of expensive, cool-looking gear to run your mix through, but it's a thoughtful and qualitative analysis done by the mastering engineer. So I said it a lot better there than I did in, earlier. In my studio, it also is a, some really cool gear, but <laughs> I'll, I'll, maybe I'll talk about that later. <laughs> that's and that's totally fine. The gear, the gear isn't bad, but um, it's, oh, I'm just kidding. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It, it, yeah. Uh, and number four, uh, mastering isn't something so different from mixing itself. So a lot of times, it's all the same tools that you use in mixing, but the end goal is different, or the mentality is different. Yes, that's that's what I I think is key there is it's it's two different specializations and I actually 
when I, whenever I um, get like a whole album mastered, I usually like to go and like sit there for the mastering session because I love nerding out with the mastering engineers. And I was talking to one guy about that and we were, you know, I was kind of picking his brain about this. This was probably about five years ago. And he was saying, yeah, you mix a lot. When you listen to a song, you're probably listening for things like, does that guitar sound right? Hmm. Does that, is that guitar loud enough? He said, when I listen, I hear, I, I'm thinking about, is there enough three kilohertz in this track, in this song, right? So he's looking at, he was looking at the uh, kind of the broad frequency of the whole song as opposed to picking out individual elements like we are kind of trained to do. When I listen to a song, I'm always listening for the individual elements and how they fit, whereas he's listening to the overall tonal balance. So it is a bit of a, it's the same tools, I agree with you, but it's a different mindset and maybe a different focus. Yeah. Well said. All right. So um, we'll dive in and we will uh, tackle the next question here. So getting right to the heart of the matter, <laughs> do I have to have my mixes or do I have to have my mixes mastered? So for all you out there that are either producing your own music in your bedrooms or you're playing in a band and you sent, you've gone to a uh, recording studio, you've sent your songs out to get mixed do you need them mastered? You know, what, if it's, if the process isn't so much different than mixing, uh, why would I need my, my tracks mastered? Um, and I think we can really dive in here and talk a lot about this, Vadim, but I would say the simple answer is no, you don't have to have your mixes mastered. Um, there's nothing wrong with just putting your mixes out into the world, whether they're on SoundCloud or, uh, Spotify professional CD release. Um, you just might not get the added benefits of having a mastering engineer work on your songs because I think in a lot of situations, um, a good mastering engineer, he's going to know whether you want your albums going out on CD or through streaming, um, YouTube, or getting printed to vinyl. He's going to know what to do uh, for each of those platforms to make sure that it's optimized to be played on those platforms that's a great point yeah mastering is absolutely media dependent so like bands that are printing to vinyl and digital distribution and whatever else they might be getting three or four different masters depending on the distribution channels so that's that's a very important point i was recently just watching on youtube um a mixing engineer talking about the difference between and you might have seen this too because i think it's a youtube channel that you follow um but he was talking about the difference between his master and the band's vinyl or no his mix versus the band's vinyl master that they got because they did a vinyl release of their song mm. and it was a death metal band i believe <laughs> which is a little bit weird for a vinyl um that is weird yeah but they decided to do a vinyl release of it and he compared them back to back and the interesting thing was is objectively you could say that the mixed version sounded way better than the vinyl master. And the reasoning behind it was very media dependent. Um, and he was talking about how a lot of times in vinyl, you only have so much headroom. So anything below 200 hertz gets summed into a mono channel. So there's not that stereo width on downtuned guitars anymore. And on the high end, a lot of roll-off is happening just from the nature of 
what vinyl is. It's a needle on a vinyl record playing back. And so it can't get the amount of highs that you normally get. So why is that important? The mastering engineer has to know that. He has to know that, um, first of all, that you have to change the way that the, the, um, the stereo width of the song through that frequency spectrum. You have to know that that's going to be happening to get printed onto the vinyl. So aside from just saying which is worse or better, um, only a mastering engineer or only somebody that works with printing on vinyl records would know that something like the low end is summed down to a mono channel versus stereo. And if you're just releasing music yourself or just sending it off to you, uh, get printed that way, you might not know that as a mixing engineer or as right. just a band releasing music yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, and I don't think that there's anything necessarily wrong with releasing your own music either. But that's that's kind of what I, I wanted to, to say here also is that, you know, we're talking about do you need do you need mastering? If you're mixing your own music, you have to almost define what mastering is in your process. Like, is it you know, when you're saying you release your own music that you mix, you can still do some quote unquote common mastering steps, yeah. but that's different than you don't get some of the benefits of sending your song to somebody who understands how to master for different formats, has that second set of ears and maybe some additional knowledge that you don't have, but you can still, you can still do some things like brick wall limit that simulate that process. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I think what you said, Vadim, sums it up pretty well as far as like, you know, do I need to have my, can I release my mixes or do I need them mastered? It's basically the same thing as saying, okay, you have like your final paper due for the end of the year, like uh, whatever it might be, 10 page, 30 page paper. Um, you could, you definitely could go and double check that yourself for any grammar and spelling errors, but it's going it's going to take you way longer to find the same errors that you, and you might never find those errors because you might be blind to them. Whereas sending them to another, another person uh, who has another set of eyes, they might be able to pick out things that you never saw before. That's a great point. Uh, that's a very good point. The other thing to consider is that if you do want your music to be taken seriously and your song is just way, way quieter than the other songs in the genre, you're going to have a harder time making an impact with listeners. So there are certain elements to the song you're releasing that are important, one of them being mm -hmm. loudness. So that's not something you can ignore. But I like what you said a lot about that benefit of having somebody else proofread your paper versus trying to do it yourself. That's, that's a yeah. good comment. And that goes the same for, I'd say, mixing as well. Like if you're, if you're in a band and you're recording your own tracks, it, it's definitely worth sending it to a different uh, mixing engineer to do that for the same for the same reasons. There's nothing to say that you can't do it yourself, but you get a added benefit from involving different people and more people. And you also get that objectivity too, because you haven't, it's not your baby, you haven't slaved over it for, you know, hours and hours and weeks and weeks too. So sometimes just to get somebody who has fresh, a fresh set of eyes and ears to look at it is good. Yeah. All right, let's move on from there. Uh, I might have gone out of order a little bit, but uh, okay. let's talk it's jazz. It's jazz, band. exactly it's not, jazz. Uh, yeah, it's not technical death metal. All right, so um, let's talk a little bit about why we should have our mixes mastered. Uh, so mastering essentially 
uh, and we talked about this before with um, acoustic treatment, um, but similarly with mastering, this can help ensure that your track translates better across all listening platforms. So I would say that that's probably the biggest benefit from, uh, you know, having a master aside from getting a higher quality of audio back. But a good mastering engineer is going to make sure that uh, your mix is well balanced. It's going gonna, it's gonna to sound good on an iPhone. It's going to sound great on a hi-fi system. Oh, another interesting thing too. I don't think this is as applicable anymore because a lot of these distributing companies, they, I think that they can um, write the DDP uh, file image if you want printed CDs done. But I know in my mastering software that you can create, um, I think it's called a DDT or a, D, a DDT, oh my gosh, uh, a DDP file image. So what that is, uh, it encodes, it's a file that encodes all of the start and t stop points of each track and it also encodes all the metadata for your album if you're releasing or the single for that matter. So it will have the, the band name, the copyright. So um, whenever this, whenever a CD with this metadata gets um, put into a sound system, like it will, it will show that back in your media player or, or whatever like that. And it'll show the, uh, the album art if you want to include that as well. But I don't know if that's as applicable anymore because a lot of these, I think CD baby and distro kid does all that stuff for, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I, I haven't worried about that since, uh, I stopped basically making albums that were being printed to CDs, but uh, that is absolutely something mastering engineers do, and it's it's part of that kind of quality check. They're also making sure, um, and that's more important for CDs as well, is they're they're looking at like the gaps in uh, of silence between songs, before songs and after songs, and even they can help you determine kind of uh, a logical progression of which tracks come first and which tracks come come last. Traditionally, those are some of the things mastering engineers have have done is kind of they're responsible for making sure the whole album flows and is consistent um oh that, that's the other thing we didn't mention ben actually that that's another uh key feature actually i'm surprised we didn't mention it to this point when you send songs multiple songs for being mastered one of the things the mastering engineer does is make sure that the songs sound consistent to each other mm. yeah right? how so do we not may, mention this yet <laughs> yeah so you may have recorded your songs let's say over the course of three years and in three different studios and they all sound good by themselves, but they don't sound cohesive one to the other. So a mastering engineer will take care of that and make sure they sound like a cohesive album rather than like a mixtape you made for your uh, girlfriend or boyfriend in high school. Yeah, that's a really good distinction because so I, I love this in the context of thinking about loudness as well. So maybe a mixing engineer is just going to think about, or at least this is what I think about a lot of the times, how loud can I get this and still have it sound good? Because louder is better, right? I'm, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. Uh, but let's say your album is, you know, a hard rock album, but you have a ballad in the middle of it. If that ballad sounds as loud as the banging tunes or is, is not more dynamic than the other hard rocking tunes, it's just going to stick out. It's going to sound weird. So a mastering engineer is going to 
balance the dynamics of your album. Um, he, he's going to look at it from an album perspective where maybe one song to the other ebbs and flows with loudness. Whereas a mixing engineer, or if you're mixing your own songs, you're just thinking about track to track um, or within the same track. How, how is the loudness happening or how is the loudness flowing, you know, through this one song? So I think that's an inter interesting thing to think about that you can't necessarily just put all the songs together and just expect them to sound good in and of themselves. Yep. Uh, the next topic I wanted to talk about here is what can I expect to get out of mastering? And I think this is a huge thing here. And, and just a side note, this might be a good place to put in the examples. All right, let's jump into a couple of examples. One thing we didn't really talk about yet is that when you're sending files for mastering, you want to leave enough headroom on your file to allow the mastering engineer to do whatever processing they're going to do. So what that means is that the loudest peaks in your song should be peaking somewhere around minus six or minus five decibels full scale. So inherently when you do that, if you were to play the unmastered version you sent back to back with the mastered version, the mastered version would be way, way louder just, you know, just for that reason alone, but then obviously because of the processing as well. That makes it very difficult to compare the two versions. So what I've done for these examples is I've just level matched the versions by ear, meaning I've taken the mastered versions and turned them down just to get the same relative loudness level. And this is going to let us kind of hone in and focus on what the differences are. So I'm going to play three examples here. And in each example, I'm going to uh, play starting with the unmastered version, then the mastered version and kind of switch back and forth. I'll make a couple comments about the differences that I hear, and then I will play them again so that you can see if you can hear the same differences as me and what else you can pick out. So the first song is by one of Ben's bands called The Fading Light. And this is a song that Ben mixed, and then he also mastered himself. So let me play a little bit of it, and then we'll talk about it. This is starting with the unmastered version. But you know I don't like it, you know I won't fight it if you want me to leave. Okay, very awesome guitar solo there. Uh, so a couple of things I hear there. One thing to do, this, this is kind of a critical listening exercise as well, and it helps to do it in headphones anytime you're doing this kind of precision type of listening. Um, listen to the acoustic guitar. Just focus your attention on the acoustic guitar and see what difference you hear. One thing I hear is that the acoustic guitar gets wider. It gets kind of farther away from the center channel which has the vocal so you feel that acoustic guitar moving away from the vocal out to the sides i also hear more sparkle which i can hear in the cymbals and the acoustic guitar kind of the pick attack of the acoustic guitar you just get that little sparkle sheen brilliance at the top and then i hear the kick become less boxy if you can picture like the sound of a cardboard box falling on the ground some of that disappears and the kick becomes a little bit tighter as a result and then finally, on once the solo kicks in, I can also hear that width affecting the solo, where the guitar 
that lead guitar goes from dead center out to the sides a little bit. So check that out again, starting with the unmastered version. But you know I don't like it, you know I won't fight it if you want me to leave. The next example is from a band called Changing Gods, which is the band I recently joined as the guitarist. But before I did that, um, I worked with the the mastermind behind the project is this really talented bass player, uh, Brett Rome. And we built uh, this song, which is called Discovery. It's the, the first single that's been released. And a couple of other songs, we built them kind of from from the ground up. So I did the the drum programming on this. I played guitar and I did the mixing. By the time we were done, we felt like I had kind of, I was too close to it, basically. I had uh, spent too much time on it. So we wanted to send it off for mastering to get that second opinion. And we sent it to Machine, who's uh, one of my favorite producers based down in Austin, Texas. So I was super pumped to get a master from him. So again, let me play this starting with the unmastered version, and then we'll we'll talk a bit about it. Play So I heard a couple of things there right away. One of the big things is there's more sub-frequencies in the kick. So again, focus your attention on that kick drum for a few seconds. And when the master version kicks in, you'll kind of hear those really beefy uh, sub-frequencies. I also hear more top-end uh, high frequencies. And where I hear that is, listen to the uh, the rhythm guitars. I can kind of hear more bite, more of that kind of um, upper-mids bite in the guitars. that just get a little more aggressive sounding. And I hear uh, kind of a splashier cymbal sound as well, which could be uh, an EQ move that uh, that the mastering engineer made there. Finally, I hear um, a little bit cleanup going on in the mids. So if you picture that kind of telephone frequency in the vocal, you'll hear that frequency drop out and the vocal gets cleaner as a result. Um, there's not much. It doesn't sound to me like there was much done on width. It uh, maybe is a hair wider, but uh, not too significant. So listen to that one more time, starting with the unmastered version. Play for kick is that big difference there um love how how much beefier that kick got 
Okay, this last example is another song that Ben mixed by an artist called Daniel Casagrande. And this one, similar to the one I just played, Ben did the mix on it, but then it was sent to somebody else for mastering. So check this one out. So I think Ben did a really nice job mixing that because there's really not too drastic of a changes between the um, unmastered and the mastered versions. But the things I do here are very similar to the previous example. So I hear uh, more sub frequencies on the kick drum. I hear a little bit more high frequencies. So again, you can kind of hear that in the splashiness of the cymbals. And I hear a little bit of cleanup in the the mid-range so specifically if you listen to the main vocal focus your attention there you can hear an increase of what i would call presence or clarity where it just kind of becomes a little bit clearer and more upfront. so check that out one more time Okay, so even though in these examples we're, we're kind of seeing some recurring themes, more subs on the kick and so on, that doesn't mean that that's <laughs> what, what mastering engineers always do. In fact, recently I was mastering a song that, that was way too heavy in the kick drum, and I actually had to turn down the, uh, some of the sub frequencies. So it's not like the changes that are made are always the same. There's a, there are a couple of go-to moves, but it's really about kind of listening to the overall balance of the song with respect to what's appropriate for the genre and making your decisions based on that. Well, hope that was helpful. Let's get back to the episode. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about what we can expect to get out of masters. And I'll, I'd be interested to hear what you think about this, but this is just me personally, but I like to tell people a good ma mastering engineer can you can expect your mix to sound anywhere from five to twenty percent better than it did after mastering? Okay. And the reason that I the reason that I say that is I like to put a number on it because and it's horrible to put a number on it because there's no way to <laughs> there's no way to quantify this, but what I'm trying to get across by saying that is at the best, you can only expect a mastering engineer to make it mm. a fraction better than your final mix is. So even the best mastering engineer in the world, he's only going to, he or she is only going to be able to make it a fifth to a quarter better than it already is. 
And I, I just like to say that in the sense of it's good to look at it with honest eyes and say, okay, I can't expect a mastering engineer to turn my mix that I'm not very happy with into something that is amazing. But if I think that I have something really, really good as a mix and I want to take it and make it even better, then uh, you can expect it to be a little bit better after mastering's done. So I don't know. What do you think about that? Am I completely off or or should I, should I stop telling people that? <laughs> I know. I, 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 no, I just laugh because of it. I like the, you know, 20% better is, uh, that would be a good name for like, um, if you ever, if you ever write a book about mastering, you should call it 20% better. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's, it's kind of like, I mean, it, it makes sense if you think about it, right? The mastering engineer only has two channels to work with, a left channel and a right channel. Whereas in the mix, you have all of your individual tracks. And just by virtue of that alone, they're not going to have the same kind of flexibility and ability to manipulate things. So it kind of makes sense if you think about it. I, I agree. You should have realistic expectations. Don't think you're going to get uh, something great out of a mediocre mix. Yeah. And just a side note here too, um, and this goes along with what I said before about not expecting a mastering engineer to make a bad mix sound great. If at all possible... You want to work to make sure that, and this is if you're doing the mixing or sending it out to somebody else, but you want to make sure that your mix is as good as it can be before sending it to the mastering engineer. So I'm always shooting for whenever I'm mixing a song, I compare it to final masters as my references, because my goal is always to make my mix sound as good as it can be. And I would say it's quite theoretically possible to have a mix sound as good as a master. Absolutely. And do and have it to the point, and I've even heard, I think it might have been Bob Clearmountain, who is, if anybody knows anything in the audio engineering world, he's a great mix engineer. Uh, he's maybe the original mix engineer. The original mix engineer. And he was talking about a track that he sent to a mastering engineer, and he got it back, and the mastering engineer said, I don't need to do anything to it. It was perfect the way that it was. And that, t I, I think... Two comments about that. One, that takes quite a humble mastering engineer to say, I didn't need to do anything to this because that is very tempting just to say, well, what if I added a little bit more high end or what if I added a little <laughs> bit more? So that is yeah. pretty cool. But it's also, um, it's also highlighting the idea too that a mastering engineer isn't a piece of gear that you just generically always run your mixes through. It is a qualitative or a qualitative analysis of you know how how is the frequency range represented in this song is the stereo width good and if everything checks all the boxes then you've checked off your quality control and the song's good for distribution mm. so I, I i love that any thoughts on that vadim nope i'm good all right just trucking along um you know, we didn't really talk too much about what what specifically is done in mastering. So yeah, I, I kind of want to tackle that, that a little bit there too. Um, yeah. So what are what are some of the processes that we would do in mastering? I'll, I'll go through a list, and then you can fill in anything that you you think that I forgot, Vadim, or didn't mention. But um, in a mastering chain, we might use things. Uh, well, we're definitely going to use EQ. Uh, we're going to do 
stereo processing. So we might make things wider or narrower. We might do some other more complicated techniques like mid-side processing, but that's also kind of EQ. Yeah, basically you have two channels you're working with. Normally we think of it as a left channel and a right channel, but altern alternatively you can switch that to be a middle channel and a side channel. And it's just a different way of processing. But to me, to me, this is like saying, this is just like listing tools in a toolbox, right? It's like saying, right. well, to build a chair, you need a hammer and a hacksaw and Band-Aids, if you're me, and a nail gun. And that's right. why you need the Band-Aid. Yeah, so like, no, these are just tools, right? These are different things that you can you can use. But, um, but uh, yeah, to your point, like these are commonly used. These are like the most commonly right. used tools, yeah. I forgot the other two that I need to mention, uh, but compression, compression and limiting. Right. Two big, two big things there too. So I guess we can go through each of those tools and talk about, you know, why we would use them, what, what's the purpose of using them and, and. Yeah. So, so just like in my workflow, when I, when I mix songs for people, I very commonly give them a quote unquote mastered version and an unmastered version. Um, so I'm giving them something that's ready for distribution that I've done my best to master, but I'm also giving them something that they can send to a mastering engineer. And so to me, you know, it's kind of like workflow dependent, but for my workflow, what I consider mastering is any processing I do subsequent to my main bus coming out of my analog gear and back into my interface. So the way my, my sessions work is I have all of my individual tracks and I've doctored them all up. You know, they've, I've brushed their teeth and gotten them ready for school. And then they all get on this one bus. And I call that the main bus. And I tell my interface, I tell Pro Tools, hey, send that whole main bus out of my interface, out of channels three and four. And I send that into some analog gear that I have, which you don't need to do at all. But I'm a nerd and I like to see the pretty lights go and I like to press the buttons. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Then, the audio that comes out of that analog gear comes right back into my interface. And so in my mind, I'm saying anything I do to that audio after it comes back into the interface, I'm calling quote unquote mastering. So if an artist is like, well, send me the unmastered version, I basically just remove that processing. And my very commonly what I do is, is, is really minimal because if I hear a problem, I try to fix that problem in the mix. But very commonly what I do for, uh, for, for mastering my songs is I will use an EQ, and I'll I use that very in a very specific way, which we can talk about in a minute. And then I use a little bit of a stereo, very very subtle stereo widening effect, just to make the mix a little bit wider, and then a limiter. And that's pretty much what I do for mastering. Uh, so that anyway, that like that's dependent to my workflow. Other people may have other things. I do my I do compress my main bus, but I do that. I consider that as part of my my mix process. A question that people may have a certainly a question that I had is like why would you use an EQ in the mastering phase is like I already have a thousand EQs in my session I've already EQ'd all my tracks that's a good question yeah why would I use an EQ um so yeah go ahead why why would you use an EQ I'll just talk about my workflow because it might be a little bit weird although it's getting way more popular in the mixing world but I do a the way I mix is called top-down mixing so I start by processing my master bus, and that's the main bus that comes out of my digital audio workstation and goes to my monitors. So I'm doing my EQ, my compression, stereo widening, saturation. 
I start there and then I move backwards and go to my buses and then my individual tracks. So the, the reason I do that is so that instead of putting, let's, let's just say in general that I recorded these tracks in my living room and there's a specific resonance frequency that's happening uh, right up in the high mid-range. And it's happening in all the tracks because I recorded them with mics in the same room. So I have to make this very specific EQ move and notch out a ringing frequency in the high end of all these recorded tracks. So I could either do that same EQ move on every single track with an EQ, or I could just put it once on my master bus and tackle all of them with one EQ move. Yeah, I don't do that. That's I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad that you have that perspective. I, I've tried top down mixing. I just don't like it. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't work for me personally. But a lot of people do it and swear by it. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a it's a good technique. Um, I know, like, yeah, Graham Cochran is a big fan of that, and and that's exactly his point: is that you can make bigger, more impactful moves more quickly by applying an EQ to buses. So, yeah, I think that's uh, that's valid. The way I use it is is very different. I I um I don't touch my EQ on my mastering quote unquote chain until the very end. Until I'm I keep it totally neutral. When I'm happy with my mix, I think the mix sounds good unto itself. Then I start pulling in reference tracks, and I'm basically just listening for things I may be off on. Like I'm skewed. I have too much mid range. Then I'll just uh, I'll use that final EQ just to kind of shape make big wide shaping moves to my track and they're subtle but i mean i'll i'll make like a let's say a 1db cut of the whole mid range right if i feel my track has had too much mid range so i use it as mm. kind of a final shaping tool after i'm already satisfied with everything else that's totally valid i think sometimes i will do that i've done that on occasion after i'm done with the top down mixing so if we think about just in the same way that you would so if i'm starting on my two bus with EQ moves to kind of shape all my tracks. I'll go through all my mixing process and then after the fact, I might think this still probably could use a little more high end. So I'll take mm. a separate EQ and do the same thing that you're talking right. about. Exactly, yeah. Or I'll notch something out. A lot of times when you start adding a lot more high end, a lot more nasty frequencies come out. So sometimes I'll just put a couple notches to kind of tame down some of those harsh things happening in the high end. See, yeah, and I, I, I definitely appreciate that philosophy, but I, I don't do that. When, when I have issues mm. like that, I typically go find them in the mix. Really? really? <laughs> yeah, I'll go through and start muting tracks and unmuting tracks and see when that annoying frequency disappears. I'll know that's my problem track and I'll fix it there. Um, Interesting. I just find I don't like making radical moves and sharp notches out of my master. Now, if I'm just doing mastering for somebody, yeah, I'll absolutely do that. But if it's my mix and I have the session right there, I'll typically try to find it. And I'm not saying that's the right thing to do at all. I'm just saying I'm super anal like that. Yeah. I like to go back and find it. Well, to your point, I do think that there is a very good reason to, to do what you're doing versus what I'm doing. And the main reason is, is you're not introducing more weird phase into into your tracks right and i will say that your the advantage of your method is just it's faster it's more efficient and yeah. you get the you get to a better result quick more quickly so yeah that's kind of preference 
I, I do want to give you, I actually don't know if we've never talked about this tool before, but there's a super helpful free web-based tool called Loudness Penalty. Oh, you heard I it? use it. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, great. I use it all the time. If, what That's this, Ian Shepard's yeah, website, it's, isn't it? Yeah, it's Ian Shepard tool. He's a, he's a wonderful mastering engineer and a really great educational resource. Just seems like a really nice dude too. I've never met him, but he seems super nice. But anyway, what this what this tool does is it allows you to drop in your final track as an MP3 or a wave or whatever format you want to drop in. And it will tell you what each of the streaming services will do to your track in terms of volume. So for example, if you drop in your track and you see that, Okay, let me, let's back up a little bit. What the streaming services are doing now is they understand that people listen to music typically on playlists. So they may be jumping around from artist to artist. And it would be super annoying if you were listening like that for one song to be way louder or way quieter than another song. So what they started doing is turning songs down. So if one song is uploaded to a streaming service to Spotify and it's significantly louder then whatever Spotify says is acceptably loud, Spotify will actually turn that track down. So what this website allows you to do is see how much your track will be turned down. And also, if you drop in your track and you get a bunch of dashes or zeros, that may mean your track is too quiet. And that's not good either. So I don't know what you've been using for a sweet spot. I don't have any rhyme or reason for this, but I've been aiming for like minus two, minus three I want to be turned down by about two or three dB. That's kind of what I've been aiming for. I'll just say I I tend to like the way tracks sound somewhere between the if they're heavy if they're heavy songs like EDM heavy metal. I like to get them anywhere between negative eight to negative six RMS. So pretty squashed. Okay. Yep. Yep. But if it's like, and I ha I have some examples of this to show, but um, it was like a ska band or or indie rock, uh, they don't need to be smashed nearly that much. So yeah. it it won't be uncommon to have you know negative ten, negative twelve, right? Um, RMS for those kind of songs. So just right. to give like a a ballpark there. But I do keep my I do keep my ceiling of my limiter at negative one, just to ensure that I don't clip anything after the fact. Well, I hope that we've made this topic of um, mastering a little bit less convoluted. So I think by the end of this, you, you can, you'll be able to tell if you need mastering or not, or if you should think about maybe sending your songs off to a different mastering engineer or not. And please feel free to message us if we miss something, because we very well could have missed something in this topic. It's much bigger than just an hour-long conversation can tackle. Yeah, I, and, I, and I think even if you're even if you're just you know doing your own mastering, quote unquote, and you're just you're just applying a limiter, that concept still applies. Of send your song to somebody else whose ear you trust, right? Who who listens with a critical ear, and just have them tell you you know what they think, and that can be like a pseudo mastering experience as well, because it's just getting that second set of ears on a different set of headphones or a different set of speakers. It can can do wonders for you. Sweet. Well, this has been fun, Vadim. Yeah, man. Uh, until then, we're going to sign off, guys. And like we always say, make sure you check yourself before you wreck yourself. Have a good one. We'll see you guys next week. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. 
Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email vk at calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.